0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. Welcome to CX Stories. I'm Tashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Beth Yap from the Department of English here at the University of Sydney. Originally from Malaysia, Beth is an award-winning author of fiction and non-fiction whose works have been published in Australia and around the world. Her books have been translated into several languages and one of them, her travel memoir, Eat First, Talk Later, was shortlisted for the 2018 Adelaide Festival Award for Literature in the non-fiction category. Beth has also been the presenter of Elsewhere, a program for travellers on ABC Radio National and her latest publication is a collection of short stories, The Red Pearl and Other Stories, published by Vagabond Press in 2017. She's currently teaching creative writing here at the University of Sydney, and today she's going to talk to us about a project with the Malaysia Design Archive. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, before we jump into the details of the project, I guess I'm interested in your broader research interests. You're a storyteller, uh, but you're also a scholar of storytelling, and in particular about what storytelling means for people from marginalized
1: communities.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about how you investigate
1: this issue in your research? A lot of my research comes out of my experience growing up, listening to stories in Malaysia, and sort of always feeling a bit, you know, as though there was a disjunct between the kind of narratives of nation. You know, our historical stories and our myths, um, the stories that the state tells itself. Um, I'm a minority in Malaysia as a, a Chinese Malaysian, so I was always really interested in the thing that is not said. You know, so we also grew up under the you know under the shadow of laws such as the Sedition Act, the Internal Security Act, um, which actually meant that you there were things that could not be spoken about because you'd be arrested and without charge and indefinitely. So I had a kind of always had a an interest in these things which can't be said and are not spoken, you know, in listening to the silences underneath, alongside, that exist uh, along with the stories that were told. In my own research, I focus in my own writing, especially in the the memoir *It first taught later. um, That was to do with um, writing an alternative history of Malaysia, which was the history of, in concrete terms, uh, of activists over the Reformasi period through the lives of my parents, you know, which is the 20th century, um, spanning that, um, what were the lives of activists, of minorities, who, you know, didn't get a foot in, in terms of the bigger picture. So this work that you've been doing with Fiona, your
0: colleague Fiona Lee, using a grant from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, so you decided to look at the Malaysia Design Archive. It's an activist archive that documents Malaysia's visual culture and history. So how does this fit within your interests of, those things that are not told?
1: So they're a really interesting archive um, because they started out being purely on the internet and in terms of physical spaces for archiving and collecting material, you know, it was their (laughs) storerooms and they they went and collected stuff. You know, their policy was uh, we take almost everything. You know, they really practiced the notion of history from the bottom up, you know, history that is made by the people who live it in terms of everyday lives. And all of the objects that they collected, you'd be hard put to find any of it within the state, you know, especially in the national archives. And so they had a kind of hidden place within our culture and our history. But everybody interacted, grandmother's kind of jewelry box, um, posters from the 1960s, you know, that you saw in coffee shops, beads that were handed down from grandmothers. So this notion of, you know, what um, deserves to be an archive, deserves to be documented, They're really interested in exploring that. And, you know, that drew us, um, Fiona and me, uh, towards uh, them and their archival practice from the bottom up. And so it's, you know, when you start from that position of looking up and looking at the restrictions, you know, of what is allowed into the state archives, the national archives, where, you know, it's a question of what is collected, what deserves to be remembered, uh, written about, researched what has a place there, and also who has access to it. You know, so I found in my own research in Malaysia, interestingly, it seemed to be more about forms to be filled in, whether you were wearing the right kind of dress to go into the archives. I mean, I got kicked out a couple of times for wearing short sleeves or you know, wearing capri pants that showed my ankles. <laughs> so the notion you know, of what is knowledge that deserves to be documented, preserved, and accessed by ordinary people, not just scholars or researchers, was something that really drew us to this archive to kind of think about what they were doing, but also importantly for for me, you know, as a, a dominant narrator of fiction and of scholarly writing, you know, it, it was a way to think about power, the power uh, that's involved in uh, knowledge production and who gets to speak. You know, so for myself as a a writer you know, we're we're the god of the page, right? (laughs) The goddess of the page. And it enabled, this project actually enabled me to explore that position and try to place myself into a different position in relation to the kinds of stories that were being triggered. Um, You know, so it was an experiment in working towards a more egalitarian um, means of knowledge production, you know, and, and this is Taking stories, you know, very much narrative as part of the kind of uh, knowledge-making process. So let's go back to how the Malaysia Design Archive collected the items.
0: You said that their philosophy was, "We'll take almost anything." So does that mean people,
1: everyday people, were able to drop things off? Is that how they collected the items? Uh, once they started and people uh, started to know about them, that's exactly what happened. You know, so they would get bequests, and that's also what I love about. The collection there's something serendipitous about you know what ends up in that collection you know so they've got um, the only archive of architectural hand-drawn drawings in Malaysia because you know that was left to them by an architect Um, they've also got a lot of LGBTQI material Um, so they do um, have a physical space Now, um, in a very hip part of Kuala Lumpur, in a building that has made a space, the owner of that building has made a space for all sorts of um, artists and uh, art organizations and galleries. Uh, So it's a very productive space that they inhabit, um, and it's filling up. So you talk about the Malaysia Design Archive as a living archive. Could you explain what that means? Malaysia Design Archive presents itself as an alternative to the um, state archives, uh, which Are more fixed in terms of what they can collect and also in terms of who can go there. It's this kind of traditional uh, or maybe kind of uh, common uh, understanding of what an archive is. You know, it's a space in which you deposit uh, mostly text, but also documents, you know, or images. And it's set apart somewhere you have to apply to gain access to it. So mostly it's scholars and researchers who go into it. And there's a certain kind of fixity about those archives, and certainly that's the case, you know, of the state archives uh, in Malaysia. For many ordinary Malaysians, like Malaysia Design Archive would be their first encounter with an archive, you know, so they are thinking about a very different kind of user of the archive. And the notion of a living archive, you know, is something that came out of discussions that we had with, you know, our two collaborators from Malaysia Design Archive, um, Jack SM Key and Ezrina Marwan and Fiona, um, and I. Um, and there was an idea of the human library. I don't know whether you've heard of that. The notion that each person is a book. Um, each person contains all the history of their you know, experiences and feelings and thoughts. So it's embodied you know, within the person. And our idea for the living archives was that, what about if we think about archives as something uh, like the body, that is living, changing, interacting? with whoever encounters it, that also contains what is not usually thought about in connection with um, research and archives. So all the affective qualities of experience, you know, something that feels. We were interested in what the object triggered, but also interested in, you know, maybe positing yourself within the object and, you know, thinking about history through the eyes of the object in some way. You know, so creative writing is very good for this kind of um, um, inversion uh, of, um, you know, subject positions.
0: And so was this the basis of some of the workshops you ran, this sort of thinking about the connections between objects and the stories that come with them or come out of them?
1: Yeah, so very much, you know, I mean, the notion of using objects to trigger memories is not new. But in this case, we were not just interested you know, in that Proustian method of you, know, you eat a madeleine cake and you know, dip it in lime tea and suddenly the whole of Combré you know, appears before your eyes. So we worked with a group of participants who were already interested in and also practicing you know, collecting in some way or thinking about their own histories. Um, you know, so we had activists, we had filmmakers, we had writers, we had academics, um, and we had students as well. Um, So they had some kind of history of already thinking about the place of memory, about narrative, uh, and about active processes of, you know, what you do with memories and and narrative. You know, so, yeah, triggering uh, memories uh, through their own objects, but also kind of thinking as much about what is triggered as what is not triggered. You know, so the presence of the object elicits one kind of story, but if that object is missing... For example, if it's a photograph that the participant, um, you know, as as one of the participants actually did talk about, it's an old family photograph, but then somebody was missing from that photograph. Uh, And in the kind of interaction between that participant and that photograph, you know, she realized what was missing. (laughs) So could you tell me about the process within the workshop? What exactly did you do with the participants? So we asked um, participants to bring in an object that they knew really well, a visual artifact. You know, it could be a photograph, a household item. Um, People brought in beads. Um, Somebody brought in a typewriter that an uncle had given um, them. Um, People brought in photo albums. Somebody brought in the wedding photograph of her parents. And then we asked everyone to sit with the object and we went through a visualization process in a kind of guided visualization into the space of the object. Right? And the purpose of this was to actually, you know, do the kind of Proustian triggering of memory, but also taking us into a space where the object was in control, not the person remembering. If that's possible to imagine, you know, for example, I walked them through the house of their object. And we walked in very, very slowly. So the whole idea with these um, memory exercises in terms of creative writing pedagogy is to mess about with time, you know, because in, in narrative has very strict time. You know, we all know the plot moves forward, even if it spirals or it does some other thing, you know, there is some kind of movement. And very often, you know, so with the stories that we know, for example, family stories of the happy couple, the happy parents. Right? There is one narrative that is dominant, and we know it so well that we don't actually have to know the details of it. You know, so this messing about with time through the object meant that we could go into the space and stay there. And if it was a known space, it gave participants the opportunity to actually interrogate that space. And very interesting what comes up, you know, in terms of who is there, uh, when, what is the time of the object. Does anybody speak in that space? You know, so it kind of throws up unexpected things through slowness and, um, what I call radical attentiveness, um, in terms of noticing, you know, so paying really radical, slow attention to what is there, but also what is not there, what is not spoken, um, what is perhaps suppressed under more dominant stories.
0: And so once the participants have gone through this visualization and going back and remembering, what was the next step?
1: So the next step coupled with the, um, you know, in terms of messing around with time is that with the slowing down to pay attention, we couple it with um, speeding up in terms of capturing whatever it is that has come up in that process of paying attention. Yeah, so it was coupled with um, once they came out of the visualization with um, periods of writing really fast. So if you've only got 10 minutes, though, and, and you know you have to write really fast to capture what was it about that space, about that object, you know, the thing that surprised you about it, you had to go for the jugular, you know, the thing that counted the most. Um, and people really got into it, actually. And, and it's interesting because not everyone was a writer. You know, so there were people who kind of did this process of documentation in different Ways, You know, they made notes or they drew pictures or they some of them spoke it. And so what, what was the outcome of these workshops? I have to say, like, thank you, COVID. We haven't got to the outcome yet. I mean, we documented uh, the whole process and that's been you know, very useful. Um, so I've um, presented at a teaching life writing conference at the University of Alberta in Canada about this project and about using those techniques, life writing, to you know, elicit stories about artifacts and about experiences from people who are not writers. You know, I, I guess we're at the kind of stage of putting together our, you know, our research and thinking about evaluating the effectiveness of those um, workshops that we did. Um, you know, some, of, some of the outcomes were unexpected in terms of how people treated the stories that came up. Um, out of um, the the writing um, sessions of the the workshop. Fiona's sessions were to do with the politics of knowledge production. And, you know, people kind of combined that with um, this practice of knowledge production from the ground up to create their own archives and rethink, you know, what an archive could be. And, you know, so some of the, the most interesting things I thought that came out of the project were the imagined archives that, People invented, you know, so there was an archive of smells <laughs> and then you can imagine like what fun they had, you know, you'd walk through a room and there'd be a certain smell and you know, and it would trigger a certain memory and it would lead you down another uh, road. Um, they also had a kind of real world practical kind of archives. So the bead makers, there was a bead maker uh, from Sabah in Borneo, East Malaysia, and you know, her imagined archive sounded pretty real to me. She paired up with another Indigenous traditional um, song smith. He's part of the tradition of of um, singers for his tribe. You know, his archive was actually his throat and his brain, which held 10,000 traditional songs. Um, so he talked about his archival retrieval system, and that, that was fascinating, you know, and, and thinking I am the archive. Um, so... The bead maker and the, the singer got together and came up with an archive that was a, a bead truck that would drive around Sabah with, um, you know, bead making and, and song making, you know, sessions for different villages. And, and they'd go into anyway, so not just their, you know, tribal areas, but they'd go into other, you know, maybe more urban areas. And it was a way to bring their culture to a wider audience and introduce them to also to these artifacts, you know, the, the beads and and. The beads that we think of as traditional beads are Venetian beads, beads that came from the West through colonial interaction, you know, and have been adopted and taken into the culture of this um, tribe. So we had many imagined archives, and one that I also really found very interesting, and I, I hope it will become an archive someday, is the Archive of Passports. So this archive, you know, it would be a repository, of all the kind of official documents that you need in order to cross borders so they very much took the notion of the living archive uh, on board in imagining this space it wasn't just a place that you went to research this material you actually had to pass through it in the way that you would pass through a border and people who came to it would be divided into two groups those who had passports and those who didn't and go through stages of um you know, experience based on that difference. Wow, what interesting
0: ideas came out of the workshop. So you mentioned that COVID sort of slowed things down. Do you know whether any of the participants have followed through with any of these ideas or have they done other things?
1: Um, so we know only anecdotally, I know that I've been in, in contact with some of them, um, one of them said her her brain had exploded and so she went off to study I mean, I can't say very much about it in, in detail, but obviously there was some kind of trauma involved in that narrative of the family. And so she became very interested in trauma studies and thinking about the writing of history and the politics of memory. And so has gone off and, you know, to do graduate studies in, in that. Um, another uh, participant that I, I, I don't know the details of because I've only heard about it secondhand um, is a, a student. And she wants to use the methodology of the workshops to participate in um, an award at her university uh, in Malaysia. And I actually had a look at the award, um, and it's to give students a chance to participate in some kind of project that will improve their employability. And so I'm like really chuffed, you know, that somebody thinks these archive, you know, the the workshops, the living archives workshops that we did, which for us are so much centered on, you know, let's explore the archive. Let's think about the creation of all these uh, new stories out of it. And, uh, you know, somebody takes it and goes, it's a way to get employed. Um, Or, you know, like with the truck, it's a way to both interact culturally, but also make a living out of it.
0: Well, what a fascinating project, and I hope that in the coming months and years you're able to go back and reconnect with some of these people, and and we look forward to hearing maybe some of the follow-up to these stories. But thanks for making the time today, Beth. Thank you. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.